You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Bet this football season with my bookie. Use promo code Gators and get a free twenty dollar wager with your first deposit. Only at my bookie. Gators Breakdown, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown Podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter, at GatorDave underscore SEC. Joining me here live on YouTube, Monday night. You know that means it's time for Will Miles from ReadingReaction.com and on Twitter, at WillMilesSEC. Will, we were talking right before we went live. It still stings. It still stings. It still stings. Uh, the uh, six-point loss to Bama in the SEC championship game. Uh, it, it is funny though. Like I, I was kind of you, know, you hate to compare losses because that means you have more than one. So you don't want to do that anyway. <laughs> but uh, sitting here saying, and, and I've seen this sentiment on Twitter a little bit too. It's like I felt worse last week though. You know, and of course, you know, you didn't really feel like you had a, a chance of losing to LSU. And then you didn't have uh, – you didn't. not many people were giving Florida a chance versus Alabama. So you can kind of feel that a little bit. That, all right, you know, it was an inexcusable loss to LSU, and that's why that one stings so much. And, and I agree. And that, that, that second half for, for Florida-Alabama, as I said yesterday on the podcast, as a college football fan, it was, it was entertaining. It was so good. Uh, it put Florida back in the game. But uh, it still hurts. It still hurts. Yeah, I mean, the LSU game stung because it eliminated us from in, from playoff contention, right? Yeah. I think there were people who were who were I guess maintaining hope that if Florida was able to win the SEC that maybe the committee was going to put them in, but based on the amount of respect that they gave Texas A&M, I, I suspect that wouldn't have been the case, right? That it's that Florida would have been left out even if they'd won the SEC and Alabama would have gotten to go. And we sort of knew that. I mean, we I think when you and I got together, they hadn't they hadn't released the rankings yet, so they didn't have them at seventh yet. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of that, I think, was probably done for a TV perspective, increased ratings. But that was the reason the LSU game stung. Not only was it unexpected, not only was Florida a huge favorite, not only was LSU coming off of getting beat by 50 points by Alabama, but it ended the dream season where you had an opportunity to potentially play for a playoff. This game against Alabama was much more just showing where the program is, um, how it stacks up against one of the big boys in the conference. In fact, the big boy in the conference and the country. And and obviously, I think there's some things that Gator fans can come away with and be really proud of the team and be really hopeful about what's coming next. At the same time, you see a lot of the old issues that we've talked about all year long or even the last three years crop up. I mean, you had some had some discipline issues when it came to penalties, had some um, turnover issues, putting the ball on the ground. You had, um, you know, all sorts of different things that you look and say, you know, that has to be clean if you're going to go beat a team that's le- that's more talented than you are. And those things didn't happen, and Florida loses by six. The only thing I'd say is it felt like more than a six-point loss to me. 
I mean, when you when you look at the stats and you look at the yards per play, the teams were actually pretty equivalent. You know, Florida torched Alabama's defense pretty well. But Alabama had like another 25 plays or something like that. And mm-hmm. I think that's indicative of the fact that the tide controlled the game. And, you know, if, if that if the um, if the Alabama defensive defensive back isn't like touching the Florida defender on the play when Trask fumbles it, this is a 14 point loss and everybody's looking at it saying, oh, you know, we're two touchdowns away and and that sort of stuff. It's, it's interesting how one one or two plays will sort of will sort of color our version of things when you start looking at the score. I think Alabama was a significantly better team. I think Florida did a gallant job of coming back in the second half. Uh, but I think the backbreaker was really the touchdown at the end of the half. Had they been able to hold them to a field goal, um, you know, maybe that maybe the that four points would have been really important, obviously. But, uh, you know, it, it is what it is, right? I mean, Florida is not good enough to win the SEC right now, and that's a bitter pill to swallow because you hoped coming into the year, you hoped coming into the Alabama game that uh, that Florida would prove differently, but that's what they proved, right? They proved they're good enough to win the East, not good enough to win the SEC yet, and, and that's the next hurdle for Dan Mullen and his program to, to climb. Yeah, kind of the theme of this episode here, you know, I've even titled it that way. Florida's close, but still a ways to go. And we'll just kind of hit on it a bit, too. We'll hit even more on that uh, in in this episode there um, as we kind of take a look back, uh, a a little more look back. uh, We'll post kind of his game review article. uh, Up today on on reading reaction. So kind of just some particular plays. uh, We'll look at that kind of show some trends of Florida and Alabama. And then uh, we'll get into a little bit of bowl talk, Florida, Oklahoma, Cotton Bowl. uh, There snuck up on us, (laughs) much like everything else has this year. Don't know a whole lot about Oklahoma, just some general college football stuff. Uh, You know, if you follow college football, you've been able to follow the Big 12 champs, Oklahoma, a a bit this year. Spencer Rattler there leading those guys at quarterback. But uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit about them before we head off there with that Cotton Bowl being uh, announced before we get all – all the way there. Remember, you can find Gators Breakdown at news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. You'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes there, as well as News 4 Jacks coverage of the Gators. If you missed our Alabama reaction episode, it's up there. Please share, rate, and review the show on YouTube. A lot of you watching live right now, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. really helps us out here on Gators Breakdown. Or if you want the audio version, check us out on your favorite podcast platform. And follow Gators Breakdown on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. So we'll get into more of a, a little more of a uh, look back Saturday night. Posted your article at Reading Reaction. A little bit of, you know, kind of sectioned off in ways where you could really tell Alabama and, and Florida were a little different. Well, some of it was, you know, as you mentioned, six-point game sort of ended up being there were things that you could point to where you could see a massive difference things where you can see just a little bit of a difference uh, between Florida and Alabama. Uh, but uh, yeah, I like the way you kind of sectioned the article off and, and some of the things that uh, were Florida was maybe outmatched, maybe outcoached. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's two, 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 two different ways to look at that. And everybody knows what we're talking about here. We're not surprising anybody here two days after the game there. But uh, you pointed out some good stuff, Will. Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, so the first thing was the running game, right? 187 yards for Alabama, 54 for Florida. And when you go back and look at the film, there's not like one play that really stands out as Florida having some significant disadvantage when it comes to the run game. But obviously those second and 10, second and nine runs that Florida was running and weren't able to get any yardage. I highlighted one of those. It was a second and 10 where Florida had numbers advantage up front and 
the offensive lineman Richard Garage came up and had the linebacker Dylan Moses one on one. Moses drove him back into the backfield and made the tackle. And then a, a little bit later, I think it was in the fourth quarter when Alabama needed to to put in a drive and really put Florida away. They were up forty five to thirty eight. They brought Jaleel Billingsley, who's a tight end, but really more like a wide receiver. He's sort of a hybrid guy. They brought him back into the backfield, and he was the guy who took on Ventrell Miller as a lead blocker in the hole. And he knocked Miller back and Miller wasn't able to make a tackle on Najee Harris. Now, obviously there's a difference between Najee Harris and Damian Pierce or Malik Davis. But at the same time, you know, the fact that Alabama was able to consistently get a hat on a hat is, is a difference between these two teams. And, and you could see it, right? I mean, the fact that Mac Jones had a lot of third and threes, third and twos, third and fives, rather when Kyle Trask was trying to convert third and 14, third and 12, third and eight, you know, that that's one of the reasons why Alabama was so successful on third down. So that was sort of the first thing. And the second thing I pointed out was that on the drive to end the half for Alabama, um, Florida basically decided to go into an eight-man coverage scheme with three men rushing almost the entire almost the entire drive, and they weren't able to get any pressure on Mac Jones, and they were playing way off the ball. So there were a couple of third downs on that drive, and Jones was able to hit guys on you know Ventrell Miller or or Diabate in coverage. And even on the touchdown to Najee Harris, they finally came with a blitz, but still had um, still had Diabate dropping it back into coverage, and he's sort of the one who got burned on the on the play to Harris. So, you know, it, it and and then when you look at the three man rush that Florida was bringing a few times, they just couldn't get they couldn't get to Mac Jones. Three man rush that Alabama brought, they got to Kyle Trask. They were able to get past Delance. They were able to blow the guys up front back into Trask's face, not consistently, not all night long, but certainly in some key. At some key times, they were able to do that. And so, you know, there, there's a difference in terms of the talent. There's a difference in terms of the ability to roll different guys in there. You saw the play where Kyrie Campbell was coming off and was gassed and couldn't get off and Florida got a five-yard penalty. You know, part of that is just you, they didn't have much of a defensive tackle rotation. They had to rely on Campbell. And when Campbell got gassed, he couldn't get off the field for that one particular play. So I, I think the teams are pretty close. I, I don't think there's some giant gap in terms of – you know, Florida can go out there and beat Alabama on its best day. They just didn't have their best day, and Alabama does the little things better than Florida does more consistently, and and it showed up. In fact, you know, you start thinking about one of the things I did at the end of the article was sort of list all the luck Florida got to be within six points, right? And so you had the referees ruled Kadarius Ta- Tony on the last drive, left Florida's last drive, the first half. They ruled him down at the one yard line um, instead of a fumble. But then the play stood. And I think had it been called a fumble originally, it probably would have stood as a fumble. Then there was the play where Naquan Wright, Jacob Copeland fumbles the ball. Naquan Wright runs back. And basically, while the Alabama defender has it on the ground, rips it out of his arms and comes out of the pile with it. Now, I mean, great on Naquan Wright. But had they gone back and reviewed that, I think they would have given that to Alabama. You know, Alabama settles for a field goal after trash fumbles deep in Florida territory. Good job by the defense at the same time. A couple of missed throws there by by Mac Jones, things that he didn't do the rest of the night. Then Malik Jones had a or Malik Davis had a fumble a little bit later when Florida was down 45-31. Jacob Copeland recovers. And then we already mentioned Alabama defensive back Josh Job uh, being offsides on trash fumbles. That's a lot of things that had to go right and had to go Florida's way in order for them to be able to stay in the game and pull it to within six. I'm not sure that, that happens every time. If you play this, you know, if you say, oh, play this game a hundred times. Still think, you know, it was like a 90%, 10% going in on the ESPN FPI. That's probably pretty close, right? Florida has the offense to be able to hang with the tide. I just think Alabama probably would have come out on top if you played this nine out of 10 times. 
Yeah, one play you diagram, you said, you know, Florida has the offense. Well, we know Florida doesn't have the defense. <laughs> and that was that was the clear difference in the game. If you want to look at sides of the ball, you had, you know, two very good offenses, great offenses going into the game. One good Alabama defense, nowhere near a vintage Alabama defense, and you had one very bad Florida defense. So yeah, if you want to kind of just rank size of the ball there, it's kind of uh, kind of how you would do it. But, well, well, one play you pointed out where uh, Bama really took advantage of matchups. And, look, Steve Sarkeesian, I tell you, I'm giving that guy a lot of credit. I've watched a lot of Bama this year. And what he's been able to do – and, look, and believe me, I know it's a whole lot easier with that talent. Believe me, I absolutely know. We, we, we know. We talk recruiting too much to know recruiting doesn't make a difference. But the way he's able to get – you know, look, you knew where the ball was going a whole lot of the time. You knew it was going to – uh, Devontae Smith, you know, you knew it was going to Najee Harris. Those two guys dominated the game. So what happens when you can balance run and pass in this? But you know, matchup. Ventrell Miller, you, you uh, mentioned here, lined up with Najee Harris at the top of the formation. Harris goes in motion, basically gets to full speed at one one part of the motion at the snap. Uh, he's already he's already outrunning angle by Miller at that point, uh, but before the ball's even snapped, um, and. You know, he gets the first down by a yard uh, after he catches uh, after he catches that kind of swing pass there. You know, first of all, a linebacker was on him. That's just ha- how how the defense was out there and drawn up. You know, it, that happens. Uh, but as you mentioned, just a, a slower linebacker. You know, and, and second, this has been an issue all season where you know somebody's manned up and you know this happens a lot in motion. The guy will come across, but sometimes you can pass those off before the snap to another guy. If if you're playing man on the other side of the formation, you don't. So somebody's not chasing all the way across the field. It's happened a whole lot this year. Uh, so, you know, the defender's already out of position by the time the ball snapped. They've identified that as a problem for Florida all year long. It's happened all season. But, uh, you know, there you go. And you kind of just want to look at it and say, why is the defense so bad? And why is it so bad week in and week out? There was one example of a play that's happened many times this season before the balls even snap, where Florida's just not even in position, not because they didn't line up in time, just because an offense is able to scheme because they've seen that week after week after week. Yeah, this isn't new. I mean, Tennessee absolutely tortured James Houston and Ventral Miller with throws to the running backs, and then the safeties were taking poor ankles, and you know they were turning into big first downs or busted coverages and those sorts of things. And most of the time, that was coming in zone. And so, in the particular play you're talking about that I diagrammed in the article, Florida's in man-to-man coverage. That's one of the reasons why Miller's coming flying across the screen, um, trying to cover Najee Harris. But you, you and I have been talking for like two months now that. What's going to happen when we've got our linebackers on Najee Harris in in the passing game? And Alabama showed, right? I mean, Harris, five catches, 67 yards, three touchdowns, pretty much all when there was a linebacker who was guarding him in those situations. And, you know, there are – Even Diabate, who's the athletic guys, couldn't keep up. (laughs) Yeah, but even that, if you look at Diabate's stats, his 40 time is slower than Bernie's, and his shuttle time is slower than Bernie's. He seems real explosive getting to the quarterback, and I think that's true. He's faster than Ventral Miller, but I think Bernie is the fastest guy. He's the converted safety, and that's what confused me about that play because you had – they were – Florida was struggling to communicate in terms of who was going to go out and get Harris and Bernie and Miller were standing right next to each other. And they wound up with Bernie guarding uh, Forrestall, the tight end coming out on a little run, little route into the flat. And then they've got Miller chasing after chasing after Harris. And it's just, 
that should be opposite, right? Like it should be like, you would think that the film study throughout the week would say, okay, we know they're going to split Harris out wide when they split him out wide. You guys are going to switch this because you're faster and you're going to be able to keep up with him. You know, on the particular play, Harris gets the first down by like six inches. In fact, I think they even reviewed it and maybe made it a fourth and one after that. Um, and and had you had a little bit faster guy out there, then you'd be able to do that. But that's something that's happened all, all year. I don't, I don't want to particularly just, just pick on Ventral Miller because he is a good linebacker when it comes to the run. I just don't think they put him in the right spot consistently. Same thing with the with the dagger, or I guess dagger, the final touchdown for for Alabama where they had Devontae Smith on Marco Wilson. You had Kyrie Elam just sort of hanging out on the on the on the right hand side of the defense, and Marco Wilson's out there on an island in a cover zero. Elam's your best corner. And if you're going to go down, you need your best corner out there on Devontae Smith when you're going to go cover zero. Whether he's comfortable playing on the you know on the left side of the defense or not, I think you got to put your best cover guy out there yeah. and give him give him a shot because Wilson just got absolutely torched. And again, I, I look and say this isn't new. Like Wilson has struggled in coverage this year, and you put the best receiver in the country on him and get, go into a cover zero, you're putting him in a position to fail. And that to me is the story of the Florida defense in 2020. It's the story of Todd Grantham really not changing his scheme, not changing his design to match up with the players that he has, right? When you've got CJ Henderson and and Marco Wilson and and Trey Dean, I guess were the corners the last couple of years, you, you can afford to do it because Henderson just locks down one side and then you can do a few things on the other side. Elam's not good enough that he just locks down one side. And so it opens up a lot of other things. And, you know, every single defensive back on the Florida team has taken a step back this year. When you look at Donovan Steiner, you look at Sean Davis, you look at, you look at Brad Stewart, though Stewart played really well in this yeah, one. Played his best game of the year. Yep. You know, but the reality is, is every defensive back for Florida has taken a step back this year. And the question you got to ask is, why is that? I think a lot of it is CJ Henderson being gone. Um, but I think some of it is just that the scheme has not been adjusted to mm-hmm. meet the strengths of the players. And Mullen came into the, the, the Florida program saying he was going to make sure that they utilize their players, put them in a position to succeed. And certainly that was something that McIlwain struggled with on the offensive side of the ball. One of the things I think we've been really, really – um, impressed with Mullen is how he was able to adjust his offense to Felipe Frank's weaknesses and get Florida to win games. And then once Kyle Trask came in, he immediately flipped and went from a run-heavy offense to a pass-heavy offense. And, and we just need to see that on the defensive side. And whether, you know, I don't suspect that Grantham is the right guy to get that done. I think Florida probably needs to move on. Um, I think, you know, based on his statistics before he came to Florida and now the statistics he's put up at Florida, that change is something that's difficult for him. And so, you know, I think we're going to have to make him change, but, um, or at least find somebody who will make a change if, it, if it's not him. But, um, you know, that, that to me is the hallmark of the defense is that they just kept doing the same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And you can talk about COVID. You can talk about not having an offseason. You can talk about all that stuff. But these were not true freshmen making these mistakes. These go. are guys who've been in the program for three or four years, should know where to go, should be able to do more complex things. And if they're not, then that's on the coach. If they're not playing the right defense, that's on the coach. If they're playing way off when they're not supposed to, that's on the coach. And then, you know, you guys talked you, you talked with Graham and, and with Nick a couple of weeks ago about the shoot throwing incident and then Marco not coming off the field. You know, that sort of accountability, whether that's there or not, is an open question as well. So, I mean, obviously, whenever when you score 46 points and don't win. Um, I, I think that says something, but th- this isn't the only time, right? I mean, they, right. they averaged 39.3 points in their three losses. And, and, and that's one of those where you just go, you're averaging 40 points a game yeah. when you're losing the game 
it's got to fall on the defensive coordinator. We saw it today. LSU got rid of Bo Pelini yep. because they didn't after, think he was after right. one season, only one season. Well, again, I mean, that's one of those things where when you realize that the person that you have is not the right person for the job, it's time to make a change. And whether you go, oh, we haven't been fair to him or not, I don't think it really matters. Nobody believes that coaching is a fair profession. There are guys who get let go after a year or two when they probably should have been given more time. There are guys, you know, but you look at a program like Florida State where they let go of Willie Taggart and you're like, all right, based on the track record that Taggart had, they should have let him go, even though he only got a very limited amount of time there. Um, you know, Grantham's had three years, and the defense improved from the Randy Shannon 2017 team, but the 2016 defense was about as good as Grantham's defense has been the last two years, and that's kind of the story of Todd Grantham. So in 2018, I wasn't real enthusiastic about the Grantham hire because I went back and looked at his time at Louisville, looked at his time at Georgia, looked at his time at Mississippi State, and said, you know what? He hasn't really improved upon – anything that anyone has done other than Peter Sermon, who apparently is a terrible defensive coordinator because <laughs> he was bad at Mississippi state. And then he went to Louisville and sort of replaced Grantham and was bad there. So Grantham is, is an adequate choice as a defensive coordinator. And that might be good enough at Mississippi state, but based on what I'm hearing from all the Florida, from all the Florida fans, adequate isn't good enough for Gainesville. It wasn't good enough for Athens either. Right. I mean, they, they let him go up in Georgia and, and sort of came up with a third and Grantham moniker and good, grief have we been bad on third down in these games where we've lost this year and even in some games where we haven't lost so you know at the end of the day you are what your performance says you are and if you're a defense that's out there giving up 30 points a game and 40 points a game in your losses I mean that it's just not acceptable and that's the reality and you know if Florida was scoring 14 points a game Everybody would coming down would be coming down hard on hard on Mullen and deservedly so because he's the guy who runs the offense and we've been there Absolutely. So now things are mismatched. Now you can say, hey, maybe it's just going to take a talent infusion, those sorts of things. But Grantham doesn't improve the recruiting either. Like you look at his track record in terms of guys before him and guys after him compared to him. Um, you know, again, in, in my article today, I've got a link to the thing I wrote back in 2018. Basically, there is no uptick in recruiting when you have Todd Grantham as your defensive coordinator. So if he's not bringing in better quality recruits. Well, if there was, there wouldn't be as many McElwain players still playing on defense. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's actually a big problem for next year, right? Mm-hmm. Is is so I've seen a lot of people compare this season to t- 2007. And there are some big differences. One is that yes, Tebow won the Heisman and put up a Heisman level year, but Tebow was back in 2008. And I suspect, I mean maybe I'll be wrong, but I suspect Kyle Trask probably will not be back. And then you look at all the guys on the defensive side of the ball who are going to leave, whereas in 2007, it was a bunch of freshmen on that defense who were sort of getting their feet wet in the SEC, came back motivated, and in 2008, were all of a sudden locked down. Unless yeah, the guy getting their feet wet. <laughs> well, unless the, guy, unless the guys all come back because they got a free year and are ticked off and – dedicate themselves and learn the scheme and and are able to execute and improve significantly and you know even more than their 20 you know than their 2019 level but improve the way we thought they might come into 2020 unless that happens you're going to be dealing with a lot of young guys there on defense you're probably looking at more of a 2007 defense next year than you are a 2008 defense because they didn't get a lot of young guys in and you know i'm at the end of the day you had a shot to win a championship mm-hmm. so i understand why they played the veterans the problem is, is that the sacrifice you made by playing the veterans is that now you didn't win the championship, and then next year you're going to have to have those guys get their feet wet, and we'll see how it goes. Yep, and um, 
I'll, tu- I'll turn it a little bit positive for a second, Will, and you know, kind of when we're looking at comparison here. And one thought all season was the explosiveness of these two teams and these two offenses. Uh, it was, you know, it was it was Florida's explosiveness, you know, went as far as to why they were in this game. Uh, at, at least in the passing game, of course, uh, the Gators' offense was as explosive was as explosive as it has been all season against one of the the better defenses that they played all year. Uh, so you know, the, and and that defense, that Alabama defense, they knew the pass was coming, and Bama still had issues stopping <laughs> this Gator passing attack led by Kyle Trask here. You know, that's how that's how special this offense is with Kyle Trask and all the playmakers, Pitts, Tony Grimes. Uh, Copeland uh, around him making plays. So I posted uh, a stat on Twitter yesterday and a small victory for the Gator defense, but you know that doesn't really amount to much when you give up over 600 yards. The stat was really more about the Florida offense. You know, surprisingly, Bama's longest play was only 31 yards, and that's an offense that loves to go deep, loves to throw the ball 50, 60, 70 yards down the field. Um, and that was about the only thing Bama couldn't hit on the Florida defense. So, uh, you know, they, they still they still had their way with the Florida defense, but Florida had deep passes of 51 yards, 39 yards, 50 yards, 31 yards. Florida had four passes that were just as long or much deeper than Alabama's uh, longest pass of the game and longest play of the game. So look, we've heard and seen Bama's defense or Bama's offense hit uh, deep shot after deep shot all season long. Well, here we go. In this game, Bama had eight passes of at least 20 yards and totaled 197 yards. Florida and Trask had nine passes of at least 20 yards, one more than Alabama, and went for a whopping 290 yards, almost 100 more yards than Alabama in explosive passes. That's why Florida was in the game. But the other side of the equation, I said I was going to be positive. You had to go to the other side of the equation, too. Uh, and that goes a long way for Bama winning the game, showing up that passing yards differential in, in the explosive passing game. Crimson Tide have five runs of at least 10 yards. Those runs totaled 85 yards, with the longest run being a 29-yard Harris run on Bama's last touchdown drive. Florida had just two runs over 10 yards, a Kadarius Tony 13-yard run, Emory Jones 17-yard run. No big runs from the running backs for Florida. Not a surprise at this point with the issues up front. No, I mean, I I think we kind of expected Florida to be one-dimensional. That's what they were. What I will say is that I'm I am not worried about Dan Mullen's ability to get points out of an offense, right? Yep. So whether if Trask leaves, I, I hope Trask comes back. That'd be great. I think it would make him a legend, right? I think one of the things that makes Tim Tebow such a beloved character, obviously the two national championships really help. <laughs> but the other thing is, is that he came back. Right. He came back for his senior year. We got to root for him for four years. You sort of saw him grow up from a guy who came in the first year in, in sort of you know spot play with 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 Chris Leak. And then coming into that year where he won the Heisman, everybody, you know, the, the real question was, could he actually be a full time quarterback? Obviously answered that question pretty well. Then the promise in 2008 and then 2009, sort of the tears after losing the SEC championship game, I think sort of made everybody feel like Tebow cared as much about the program as we do. And so that's one of the reasons why he's such an endearing character in Florida lore. Trask has an opportunity to do that if he comes back, which is sort of interesting. Um, you know, you, you think about, well, you're, you'll make the money in the NFL. You'd be stupid not to go. It's guaranteed money, all those sorts of things. At the same time, like there's something to be said for being the the big man on campus, the Heisman front runner coming into next year and just sort of becoming part of the fabric of a program in a way that uh, – 
you know, in, in a way that not everybody is able to do when they have one good year or one and a half good years like Trask has. But if Emory Jones is a quarterback, I, I have a lot of confidence that Mullen's going to be able to get him to play really, really well, and that it'll be different but the Florida offense will still be humming because of this, right? He's been able to show that he can make adjustments. They lost four wide receivers last year and had everybody had everybody step up. And really, if you're talking about the explosive plays, the explosive plays have picked up considerably since they finally decided Kadarius Tony was a weapon that was worth using deep. Mm-hmm. So against Vanderbilt, was his first game where he got over 100 yards receiving, six receptions for 107, took a little bit of break against Kentucky, three for 38, but obviously had the punt return for the touchdown. Then the last three games, eight for 108, nine for 182, and eight for 153, along with six rushes for around 80 yards. So they've been using him in a lot of different ways. They've been using him consistently, and quite honestly, him becoming a huge weapon the last four or five games has made it, made it a whole lot easier to weather the storm when Kyle Pitts was out. But also once Pitts came back, gave Trask confidence that he had a guy who could get open at just about any time. You know, he was a lot better earlier in the year. I mean, he was a, Tony was a really, was a much improved player early in the year compared to what he was last year and the year before, but he became a go-to receiver over the last two or three games. And that's why the Florida offense was able to hit all those deep throws. I mean, Pitts is going to give you a 30, 35 yard throw down the middle. He's going to give you that, you know, the touchdown that they got on the end where they just sort of threw it up with a couple of defenders in the area, which is an extraordinarily valuable thing, but to be able to hit a guy behind the defense and turn it into a touchdown, that's not something Florida's had in a long time. And Tony was given to that, given that to them the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Well, so I mean, like, I mean, as I said, you know, no big runs from the running backs, not surprised at this point with the issues up front. Uh, and Kyle Trask was still able <laughs> to, to go off and, and hit these deep passes down the field. So, but look, you know, not only issues up front in the run blocking, but you know, as the season wore on, and, and this game highlighted it as well, the Florida offensive line gave up more pressure and sacks, and, and Trask was still able to deal. Will you know? This was this was going to you know lead me into your more into your article here. And everybody's it's titled Dan Mullen has built Florida into an offensive power, but not yet a complete program. And that's kind of what we're just, just discussing here. And you know, Mullen was asked after the game, where does Florida need to get better to take the next step? And he mentioned getting better in the trenches. It was the first thing out of his mouth, getting better in the trenches on both sides of the ball. Well, going back to what I just discussed, Will, with, with Trask, and he was able to play well despite the offensive line. This group got worse in every facet as the season went on. And here we go. I had to look it up today. It's I was it, it just kind of pinged in my head. Florida gave up ten sacks in the first nine games of the season, and then gave up nine sacks in the last two games. So you could say, well, okay, you played. I know LSU was terrible this year, but you played teams with better talent. But you know, besides Georgia, Georgia, LSU, Alabama were the three most talented rosters you would go play all season. Maybe had something to do with it, but also I just think they eventually all these teams kind of figured out you could go attack that right side of the line, no matter who you were playing. You could go attack the right attack the right side of the line. So ten sacks in the first nine games and gave up nine sacks in the last two games versus LSU and Alabama. And will you mean like I said, you showed in your article the difference in the trenches versus Alabama on both sides of the ball. It it I mean and will you and I have discussed when we, when we discussed recruiting a whole lot. It's like where do we want Florida to be the strongest? And I remember with two, two and a half, three years ago, maybe I remember one of your first articles I ever read was exploring how important it is to be strong on the defensive front in the SEC. That's I'm telling you, that might be a top two or three position group where you have to be elite. And, you know, Florida is pretty good there. I mean, they, they got the Mac Jones. They, they sacked Mac Jones uh, a bit too, but 
the run game, the run defense, and um, which had played better uh, along this season too. But once you go start playing the elite, you see the difference. Yeah, well, I mean, it's also a per play thing too, right? So Florida ran 66 plays, Alabama ran 83. Alabama had five sacks, seven tackles for loss. Florida had two sacks, five tackles for loss. So not only was Alabama just on a total number, you know, on a total number basis in the backfield a lot more, but on a per play basis, five sacks and 66 plays versus two sacks and 83, Florida was getting to the quarterback a lot less often. Yeah, I mean, look, we can beat a dead horse all we want. I think Florida has improved its recruiting compared to where it was under Jim McElwain. I don't think it's anywhere close to where it was under Urban Meyer. And Urban Meyer set that Gator standard that that Dan Mullen keeps referring back to. And the reality is, is that there was some stuff coming out this week talking about Urban Meyer. I don't know how true it was, but talking about Urban Meyer, like opening up the 24-7 webpage and seeing where his team stood (laughs) on the recruiting rankings because that dude is competitive and he doesn't want to lose at anything. And this is one of the things... You know, the thumb wrestling attitude, I think people have been sort of looking for for Mullen this year. And I don't know what happened because, to be honest, that has gone away a little bit. And the question is, was it just not real <laughs> when that rant came out? Or is it that it's it's like COVID and all that sort of stuff has taken its toll this year? Or he knew he had a team that wasn't necessarily going to be able to going to be able to excel or I, you know, I don't know what it was because the reality is if you don't want to lose at thumb wrestling, then you sure shouldn't want to lose at recruiting. And so how do you make changes? How do you make adjustments? How do you do things differently to make sure that instead of finishing 10th, you're finishing fifth and instead of finishing fifth, you're finishing second, because it's a heck of a lot easier to win these games when you've got equal levels of talent. And Florida actually, when you look at it, probably had three of the six best guys on the field. Yeah, It was everybody else that you looked at and said, okay, those three guys for Florida have to make up for the deficiencies elsewhere, right? Trask has to get rid of the ball quickly or slide in the pocket or do whatever because the offensive line can't hold up. Or, you know, the defensive line has to get to Jones quicker because the defensive backs can't hold up. Or the linebackers have to be sort of shuffled in and out because one guy's not good in pass coverage and one guy's not good against the run. You know, we – You'll hear a people say a lot of times a three down linebacker. Well, what that means is that you got a guy who, who's just as good against the run as he is against the pass. You can keep him on the field the entire time. Florida doesn't have any of those guys. They've talked a lot about cross training. They've talked a lot about having hybrid players. But part of the reason that you need those hybrid players is you need them because you don't have that guy who's a three down linebacker. Alabama probably has six of them on their roster, and that, and that's one of the differences when you look at this. Well, yeah, how many times have we seen mass substitutions? Going from second down to third down. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they did that last year. I'm trying to remember. It might have been the Tennessee game where they were just going in and out, in and out, in and out, and got caught a few times because they were trying to get, I think, Jeremiah Moon. They were trying to get him off the field on third downs. And David Reese trying to get him off the field on third downs and got caught a couple of times. Um, You know, hey, look, at the end of the day, Florida has enough talent to compete with Alabama and Georgia. I think that's what they've proven this year. The question is, and and what we talk about with recruiting all the time is probabilities, right? Like how probable is it that someone's going to turn into a star? And you start looking at the percentages of teams, even Dan Mullen, who's done really, really well against teams with more talent. 
only wins those games about a 50% clip. When a team has less talent, he wins the games like an 83% clip. And when you look at top 25, he wins those like 70% of the time. So a team that has top 25 talent, but worse talent than him, he's probably beating it like a 75 or an 80% clip. So teams like LSU has by 24 seven has more talent. Now I think you could argue they didn't have that on the field the other night. Um, but Alabama certainly does. Georgia certainly does. And so they got one out of two, right? I mean, if you look at it and say Georgia and Alabama were teams that were more talented than Florida this year, Florida won one out of the two. And part of that is that Georgia just didn't have any stability at the quarterback position while, while Florida did. So, yeah, I mean, obviously there's work to be done there. I think there are changes that need to be made. There are some um, just attitudinal changes that I think need to be made. If you don't want to lose at thumb wrestling, don't want to lose at recruiting. Right. And and if you're okay losing and recruiting, then you can't do things like waste timeouts in just completely inexplicable fashion. Like you have to be perfect when you're managing the game on the field as a coach. If you're going to beat teams like Alabama, if you don't have the same level of horses that Alabama does. And you know, you can look at all the different things that Florida did right. You can look at all the different things that Florida did wrong. At the end of the day, the time management, both at the end of the first half and at the end of the second half, were really bad. And, you know, I think you can argue cost Florida at least six points. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, quickly, I guess, before I go into uh, our, our the, the second half of the show, anything else? Uh I mean, you just mentioned the clock management. If you want more of those thoughts there, he does go into it at a read and reaction. As you said, you know, it was the – Florida had to be perfect in every facet, playing and coaching uh, there. And they kind of you – know, everything, you know, as we said, we mentioned in the first half, it was kind of self-inflicted wounds uh, on the defense, not being able to get off the field on third down, penalties on third down, keeping drives alive uh, there. And then into the first half, toward the end of the game, some clock management issues and you know, there we go. I mean, it's, we, we, we've hit them. We, we've hit them of course, but uh, anything else there will. I mean, I think the big thing is, is I've probably come off as negative. It's because I've had three days to rewatch the tape. Um, so <laughs> I did a video recap right afterwards. It was pretty positive about what was going on though, obviously very confused about the timeout um, or the two timeouts really, because that's my problem with it is that the first timeout after they took so much time to move down the field, it took them almost three minutes to go all the way down the field when, you know, they'd been blazing up and down the field the whole game. And then to use a timeout there on the throw to Grimes and then to use the timeout for the two point conversion, you're just like, Oh, what the world's going on here. Um, but I, I'm incredibly, I, I think it's incredibly promising that Mullen goes eight and three in a year with all the stuff going on with COVID in a year where, you know, we saw Trask take a leap that I certainly didn't see coming in. I thought he was going to be better. I didn't think he'd take this kind of leap, which gives me a lot of hope that the offense is always going to be there. You look back in Florida history, Spurrier took a little bit of a step back in year three, but not a significant one. You look back at year three for Urban Meyer, that's that 2007 year, took a step back, but not a huge one. Um, you look at guys like Ron Zook and Jim McElwain and Will Muschamp, and in year three, things really started to fall apart. Um, though Zook was able to right the ship a little bit before, you know, after he got fired. But but the um, the reality is, is that the coaches who haven't made it at Florida are ones who have really struggled in that third year. And I don't think Mullen fits that bill. So I, I think he's capable of learning. I think he's capable of getting better. And this is one of those things that's going to teach him that. The only thing that I would say is that the comments that he made going into halftime, where he wasn't concerned about his defense, that he's just like, I just want to score points. That's what I expect to hear from an offensive coordinator, not from a head coach, right? You know you need to protect your defense. You've watched them all year. 
And, you know, your job as a head coach is to protect your defense. Your job as an offensive coordinator is to score points. And I get that, um, you know, that you just want to score, that we've had problems in the red zone, all that sort of stuff. At the same time, like, game management is the head coach's responsibility. Same thing with the two-point conversion, right? Like calling a timeout there is just inexcusable. It's malpractice. Kick the extra point. If you're going to, if the play clock's going to run out, you really ought to have the play ready before you, you should know going down the field that you're going for two anyway. And that play should be in there right away. Um, the fact that it wasn't means that, you know, that's on the head coach. And the reality is, is that that game management is something that's going to need to improve. But again, Eight and three, very positive year. The offense was absolutely unbelievable. The defense really, really struggled. I think there are some changes they need to make on the defensive side of the ball. But uh, you know, uh, the fact that things, the wheels didn't fall off like they have in some in a couple other years. I, I remember you, you and I were talking before the Missouri game on the podcast, and it was, hey, this can go one of two ways coming out of this COVID stuff. You know, the team comes back, they're missing a ton of players. They're coming in against Missouri. They just lost to A and M. Are they going to come out? And lay an egg, or are they going to improve? And obviously, they came out and made a statement, sort of blitzed Missouri off the field, came out there, beat Georgia, and all of a sudden, this this is an extraordinarily successful season. So, you know, I think the Alabama game, particularly because of all the mistakes, particularly because you look at it and say, oh, we had a chance, does leave a little bit of a bitter taste in your mouth at the end when you sort of see the the mistakes that were self-inflicted. Like, Alabama's going to make you make mistakes. Like, the hands-to-the-face yeah. penalty for Zach Carter – that happens sometimes, right? The offsides where the offensive, where the where the uh, where the center's bobbing his head and and they're jumping offsides. Okay, those things are going to happen sometimes. Um, the things that are self inflicted are the ones that really bug you. And in this case, Mullen was one of the people who was self inflicting those sorts of things, and that's something he's going to have to clean up going forward. But again, I, I don't think Florida was probably good enough to beat Alabama most times they played this game. Keep it within six. You know, I, I think it's a great showing for Florida. I still think they have some work to do to catch the tide, and hopefully by the time they do, all these things we're talking about will be cleaned up. Yeah, that's kind of going to the theme of the episode. You know, how close they were, six point versus Alabama, but maybe for the program, still how far it is. Still lost to Texas A&M. Still lost to LSU in games you shouldn't have lost. Teams you were – I still think you're better than Texas A&M. Still think you, – you're definitely better than LSU. You just – you know, we've already hit that inexcusable loss there. Uh, but – uh you know, it shows you just how good the team could be when they're close to to playing really well. Uh, they, they, they didn't, like I said, we didn't even play their best versus Alabama. Still lost by six, and um, there you go. I mean, that's kind of see you see how close they are, you see how far they are, all at the same time. So, hey, that's why it's fun, man. Like, yeah. like th- this has been a blast of a season. Like really you said, have. in the second half, especially, it was awesome to see the team really bow up and and come back and show heart and start chucking the ball up and down the field and showing what we wish they had shown from the jump, right? Which was that they're not going to be intimidated and they're going to go up and down the field and score with Alabama and be aggressive. Um, you know, unfortunately they were down what 17 points by the time that finally started happening. But I mean, still a very gallant effort by the guys. I, I don't want to diminish the fact that they are going to be the team. I think that plays Alabama the closest this year. I think Alabama is going to romp to a national title once the playoff comes around, especially since who do they get Notre Dame first? Oh, it's going to be a bloodbath. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we get, we're going to get, we're, we're most likely going to get Alabama Clemson again. Maybe Clemson gives them a better game, but uh, I, I think at the end of the year, we're going to look back and say for the second straight year that Florida probably gave the eventual national champions all they could handle two years in a row. But at some point, you're going to have to get over that hump. And that's one of the things with the SEC, right, is you can get away with being maybe less, not quite as 
quite as good as an Alabama or a Georgia when you're in the Big 12 or when you're in the Pac-12 or when you're in the Big 10, even the SEC or even the ACC. But in the SEC, you got to be the best in the country because Alabama is the best in the country. And that's part of the curse of being in the SEC, but part of why it's so much fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. There. It is a, it is a, you know, it's a double edge there being in the SEC. So exciting. So tough. All at the same time. All right. We'll get into some uh, news notes, of course, bowl game coming up. But before we do remember, it's the most wonderful time of the year that can't end soon enough. We all deserve a win. We all deserve a little extra money in our pocket and we all deserve to have a little fun. The only place you're guaranteed to get all three is my bookie. My bookie is the only sports book that doesn't care whether you were naughty or nice this year. They got gifts for everyone. Bet the NFL, NBA, all your favorite college sports, and more. Sign up today and receive the ultimate stocking stuffer, a 50% deposit bonus up to $1,000. That's a great place to start, but we all know Christmas is about what's under the tree. And at MyBookie, that means huge deposit bonuses, epic giveaways, and free contests. It's simple. Sign up, enter promo code GATERS, and get your deposit matched halfway up to 1000 bucks. Head over to MyBookie to make the make the most of the holidays this year and strut into 2021 with cash in your pocket this winter bet with the best bet with my bookie i will a little bit of news today not huge breaking news for the gators or whatever josiah pierre putting his name in the transfer portal linebacker there for the gators eight tackles half tackle for loss had four tackles versus vanderbilt of course, you know, Florida's led at linebacker this year, Ventrell Miller. And then we saw Amari Bernie, James Houston, Mamou Diabate play the most uh, there with Diabate getting more and more playing time as the season went on. Still have true linebackers, Will, that didn't get a lot of playing time this year in Tyron Hopper, Derek Wingo, young linebackers. They're not getting a whole lot of time you know, to go along with three signees last week. DeWan Black will more than likely get some time there between there and maybe secondary a bit as well. Uh, Jeremiah Williams, Chief Borders fit in at linebacker too. So you know, there's some players to look at there. Maybe some of those out of position could find their way in the other spots uh, on the defense. But it looks like, you know, Pierre didn't see himself in the rotation too much next season. Yeah, I mean, you know, he got a little bit of playing time this year, but not a whole lot. And certainly once you start seeing Dante Lang playing – playing linebacker against Texas A&M, um, you start figuring, okay, maybe maybe this isn't the place for me if I'm not getting in the game when they're bringing in a converted tight end. And, you know, again, I don't know the dynamics of what's going on in that room, but that is one of sort of the endearing images for me of of 2020 is, is Florida having Dante Lang in there and me going, I thought he was a linebacker, or I thought he was a tight end. And then all of a sudden finding out afterwards that, that no, they're converting him over to linebacker. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's supposed to be defensive line, and then he's playing some linebacker too, so. Uh, you know, he, <laughs> those hybrid players, they yeah. prostrated them. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, Pierre didn't play a lot this year. I think, though, any sort of depth loss is, is a problem. You know, we, we've talked a lot about attrition in Florida's recruiting classes. But one of the things, and I think this does bode well when we start talking about closing the talent gap, when we start talking about, um, you know, moving forward with recruiting, I think some of these things are going to be offset by the fact that this is essentially a free year by the NCAA. And so guys are going to be able to come back and add to depth in ways that they haven't been able to before. So essentially you're going to have five recruiting classes on your campus next year. And some of these guys who are seeing the depth build up are going to go, are going to go into the transfer portal because they can see they're not going to get any playing time. So that's maybe the silver lining is that, you know, it's an indication that, that 
you know, Miller and Houston and, and Diabate are starting to sort of take hold of the role and that Pierre sort of sees the writing on the wall. These young guys are going to move in front of him. And when they do, he's going to be the odd man out. So you, you get out now. And with the new guys, like you said, Black and some of those others who are coming in with this recruiting class, um, you only expect the competition to ramp up. And, and Pierre probably has a better shot getting a starting role someplace else. And I suspect that that was voiced to him by the staff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 So there, there, that's the uh, only news we'll figure out. Uh, we'll have it covered, of course, as well. We get uh, more, more word of, um, Transfers, opt out, uh, however we want to define it right now, <laughs> if, uh, uh, with a bowl game uh, still to play, we'll see. See what all uh, comes out of that. Uh, he won't be the last one. Well, I mean, we probably know that for sure. I mean, there's going to be plenty, plenty more. Uh, either opt out, don't play, transfer, all that good stuff there. So we'll uh, let a few minutes here as we close up the episode. And uh, it was announced, of course, yesterday. Uh, after championship weekend, we get the bowl announcements and Florida will play Oklahoma in the Cotton Bowl. Oklahoma winner of its last seven games, Big 12 Conference champions for the sixth straight year. They'll face Florida in the Cotton Bowl Wednesday, December 30th, AT&T Stadium in Arlington. Will marks Oklahoma's sixth consecutive New Year's Six Bowl game and will kick off at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. Well, pretty interesting here. The Sooners are uh, not playing in the college football playoff for the first time in Lincoln Riley's four-year head coaching career. They've been in the playoff every year since then. So the first year out of the playoff, they are playing Florida. Still a New Year's Six game. They finished sixth in the college football playoff rankings, while Florida finished seventh, stayed at seven um, after you know losing to Alabama. Oklahoma, eight and two overall, six and two in the Big 12 regular season, uh, and is one of four teams nationally one of two power five squads that ranks in the top 20 in both total offense and total defense, 18th in total offense, 475.8 yards per game and 20th in total defense. So a balanced on both sides of the ball, Oklahoma team will. Well, that's sort of weird. That's not usually what we expect from, uh, from big <laughs> teams. And it's going to be a really interesting season when we start thinking about how, yeah. How to compare these teams, right? Because we haven't seen any interconference play. There you go. Yep. So you start looking at it, you go, all right, well, you know, Oklahoma lost to Iowa State by a touchdown and then beat them by six in, in the Big 12 championship game. Well, how good is Iowa State? Well, Iowa State lost to Louisiana and Ohio State beat Texas 23 to 20. And then you look and you say, okay, well, Oklahoma beat Texas 53 to 45. So what do you think of Texas, right? Do you think Texas is all that good? Well, Texas was like a week away and a loss away and an Urban Meyer commitment away from getting rid of Tom Herman. (laughs) So, you know, you look at that and say the Longhorns aren't real pleased with the way that team's playing. And Iowa State and Oklahoma were sort of sneaking past them or squeaking past them. And and so – I don't know what to make of it, right? I have no idea whether it's just the Big 12 happened to have one of those years where not everybody had just a, a an awesome offense. Now, one thing I will say is that Spencer Rattler, when you look at his stats, does seem to have a pretty good profile. So, you know, 68% completions, 9.5 yards per attempt, a QB rating of 171, 25 touchdowns, seven interceptions. And then you go and look at what he actually did during the year. He had five touchdown versus Missouri State. All right, you sort of expect that. Four against Kansas State, but I know he threw a bunch of picks there. Uh, but you start looking at what he started to do towards the end of the year. Oklahoma State, 17-24 for 304 yards. 
Baylor a little bit worse, 20 and 28 for 193, but two touchdowns. And there he had 76 or Oklahoma only had 76 yards rushing. It's amazing. They won that 27, 14, but then against Iowa state 22 of 34, 272. So Rattler, I think has gotten better throughout the year. Certainly mm-hmm. having a guy who's a true freshman playing the Lincoln Riley system, you would expect him to get better throughout the year. You mentioned they've won seven straight. Haven't spent a lot of time looking at Oklahoma's uh, Oklahoma's film or any of their stats, but I suspect that the improvement of Rattler is one of the reasons why Oklahoma lost to Kansas State and Iowa State early in the year and then is able to come back and beat Iowa State at the end of the year and roll off seven straight wins. Yeah, they got some players back after, uh, look, they started season one and two. Uh, They beat Missouri State and then lost to Kansas State and then lost to Iowa State back-to-back. Lost to Kansas State 38-35, lost to Iowa uh, State 37-30, you got to kind of then they rebounded, beat Texas there to get their second win in the season, fifty three to thirty five, or 50, yeah, fifty three to forty five uh, there, and then um, later in the season, sixty two points back to back versus Texas Tech and Kansas, then beat a really good, uh, pretty good, not really good, pretty good Oklahoma State team, forty one to thirteen, and then but here we go. I mean, the last two games they only scored twenty seven points, twenty seven fourteen over Baylor, twenty seven twenty one Iowa State. Uh, there, you know, Spencer Rattler, yeah, really good quarterback. And a uh, first time in a while, you know, not a transfer quarterback there at Oklahoma. <laughs> so so that, that was a big, uh, a bit of a difference there for Oklahoma this year. Uh, running game improved throughout the season, as, they got, as I said, as they got some players back, defenses uh, did as well. So, you know, more, to, more of the one, more of the probably better balanced teams Florida has played this year as far as offense defense goes, as we just, as I said, the, the rankings there. Uh, so, you know, should be a pretty good matchup, um, there. I know, um, ESPN was, I was listening to ESPN radio on the way back from Atlanta yesterday and I didn't get this. I think that I thought they were, they were probably just creating drama. I didn't agree with it, but they were really, really, really trying to push Oklahoma before the, before the announcements for the four were made. Oh, could big 12 champ Oklahoma get in? I'm like, no, they can't get in. You know, you're just cre- you're creating drama. I'm like, they're good. They have gotten better. They're, they're playing a lot better now, but they're, they're not a, Final Four team. Florida's not a Final Four team, uh, you know, so you know, Texas A&M is really the only other team that had a had a legit argument there uh, going into that fourth spot. But no, you know, pretty good matchup here. A six numbers number six, number seven. Um, you know, to it, it is the highest matchup out outside of the four. Uh, there, Texas A&M is five, but of course, that wonky Orange Bowl. SEC, ACC contractual tie-in like Florida had last year had to play Virginia in the Orange Bowl. So bowl game, needs, bowl system needs to just be reworked. We, we said that last year when we're looking at that. But, yeah, I mean, looking at that, you got your top four playing against each other, Will, but then here's your next highest matchup, Oklahoma and Florida. Yeah, I mean, you would expect this to be a really good matchup. I think a lot of it depends on who plays. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I, I look at it, and you know, you're talking about Oklahoma being balanced. If Florida's offense from the other night shows up, it doesn't matter. I mean, right. at the end of the day, oh, Oklahoma's got a defense. Doesn't matter. Florida will shred them. Like, you know, I, I don't – you went into the year thinking, all right, Florida may have to outscore, especially after the first couple of games. You're like, all right, Florida's going to have to outscore Georgia and going to have to outscore Alabama. I mean, they put up, what, 44 against Georgia and 46 against Alabama? Yeah, so, I don't know if defense is as good as Georgia and Alabama. I don't think so. And and even with the injuries that Georgia had, I, I don't think so. So I, I if Trask is there, if Tony's there, if Grimes is there, if the only guy they're missing is Pitts, then I think they have an opportunity to do the same thing, put up 45 points, and Oklahoma's going to struggle to keep up. If Trask decides to opt out and you've got, you know, Emory Jones starting and you've got, you know, 
if Forsyth decides, oh, you know what, I'm going to opt out and get ready for the draft, and you need a new left tackle, then who knows what's going on. And I know you guys mentioned it last night that most of the time these bowl games are valuable from the standpoint of you get all those practices where you get the young guys work and you get sort of a camp and and all that sort of stuff. I kind of like to see him do that anyway, basically give them practices, additional practices in the spring or something, just because of all the time that people missed earlier this year. But, uh, you know, and the same thing on Oklahoma's side is who's going to show up there. You just don't know. I have no idea what their situation is in terms of seniors and juniors and guys who are draft eligible and guys who might say, you know what, it's not really worth playing a bowl game on a quick turnaround um, when I can just get ready for the NFL draft. And so, I mean, I think this year more than any, the only things that are going to be sort of predictable are going to be the playoff games because there everybody's going to play. And Mm -hmm. once you start getting out of the bowl games, it's going to be like who shows up, who's motivated, who wants to play. And then it comes down to the skill level. Like I said, I think if Florida, if Florida comes with their full complement of weapons on offense, minus Kyle Pitts, I think Florida's going to be able to put up points against anybody. I think if, if Florida, if Emory Jones is starting a quarterback, who knows? I mean, it'll be fun to watch because we'll see, you know, people have been clamoring for now for three years, but, uh, you know, it, it's just a very different thing. Now, I don't think Trask will do that. I think Trask will play the game. I think that's sort of who he is. And that's right. not a knock on Pitts either because I don't blame Pitts for for right. opting out. I won't blame any player for opting out. I think you should if you're a first-round pick and you you got one more game and it's sort of a just really what amounts to an exhibition. Um I think it makes sense to go to the NFL. I think it would make sense for Trash to do that as well. Um, so we'll see who does what and who ends up playing. And hopefully it's a good time and sort of a celebration of these guys. Because one of the things that is a shame is as good as this team is to have those two straight losses coming into the end of the year, you'd like to end this year with a win, yeah. end up nine and three, have a positive taste in your mouth coming from a team that quite honestly has been one of the most enjoyable Florida teams to watch in a really, really long time. And, uh, you know, certainly there are warts, certainly there are things that need to improve for the program as a whole. But again, you look back at sort of these guys, you know, Trask went to the SEC championship game in 2016 when they got absolutely demolished by Alabama, lives through the 2017 year, almost gets a shot to start in 2018 after the Missouri game, but then hurts his foot, comes in in the 20, comes in in 2018 after the injury to Franks and then has this unbelievable year this year. You know, Nick said yesterday that no one's going to replicate the story of Trask overall from a two-star recruit, not starting in high school, and all that sort of stuff. But forget all that stuff. Just his journey at Florida to yeah. get to where he's at and to get to where he's at a place where, you know, legitimately should be in, you know, if not the front runner, at least in the top two for the Heisman Trophy. And all those guys who came in at that time, you know, I know Marco Wilson gets a lot of crap. I know Steiner gets a lot of crap. And, you know, to be quite honest, there are times they've deserved it and times where maybe I've been a little bit softer on them just because I don't particularly like going after players. But, um, you know, all those guys who lived through that 2017 year and had to live through the transition, bought into the program, bought into what Dan Mullen was trying to sell them and have been key contributors to the 10 and three season in 2018, the 11 and two last year, and now the eight and three this year and sort of the progression we've seen, the progress we've seen, the improvement of the team. Obviously Mullen gets a lot of credit for that. Trask gets a lot of credit for that. But at the end of the day, those guys who were here in 2017, who bought in, um, you hope you get to send those guys out with a win because they sure deserve it and have been a big part of the success. It's a good point there. You know, a lot of the guys that were in on transition, uh, (laughs) this will be their last game. This will be their last game. Uh, you know, they got to enjoy 2018, 2019, but maybe didn't get to play as much. But now they get to play as much and, you know, hopefully, you know, walk walk out with a, a victory there. You know, somebody like Tony, who's completely transformed his game. <laughs> it's, it's, an, it's an opportunity to finish three straight years in the top 10. 
if, if they beat Oklahoma, they probably end up nestling in there, what, fifth? Probably. I think Notre Dame loses by about 80 to Alabama. They'll probably drop down below Texas A&M. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know. i got to remind people with that, too, before I go even further. The college football rankings, what we saw yesterday, that is the last rankings you will get from the college football playoff. They, they do not update after – the games are played. We'll have to see AP coaches poll and all that. So, you know, to Will's point there, everybody, if you're trying to look at for college football playoff rankings, there won't be one. You'll have to see where the the traditional polls rank these teams. Yeah, but you know, if if Notre Dame ends up getting blown off the field yeah. second straight time, then they're going to fall, and that'll allow A and M and a team that beats you know if A and M wins their bowl game, and then a team like Florida, if they're able to beat Oklahoma, to slide up in there pretty high up in the top ten. Again, three straight years in the top ten is something that we would have been dying for. <laughs> three, straight, three straight New Year's Six games. Like I said, we know, we know it's disappointing because of what happened Saturday and how close you were this year, but you know, still it, it beats the alternative. Absolutely. And and that's one of the things that I think um, helps put things in perspective is that, you know, the, the 2001 team with Rex Grossman was sort of in the same situation, right? You lose that game yeah. to Tennessee. You don't go to the SEC championship get, game that year. They go and I think they beat Maryland in the Orange Bowl, just just absolutely demolished Maryland. And everybody was like, wow, like that team was so good. And I think they finished like third in the country after after that win. And that's one of the teams that I think people look back at very fondly in Florida lore. Mm-hmm. And the journey to me is what's important, like to see how much the team has grown, to see how much Trask has grown, to see sort of how Pitts went from somebody who said, wow, he's a matchup nightmare to, wow, he's like the best player in the country. And then just the journey this year with Kadarius Tony, like you were mentioning, mm-hmm. to go from a guy who was a key contributor on the offense for the first half of the year to all of a sudden being the key contributor on offense for the second half of the year, I think has been a really cool journey to watch. So, um, you know, the, the journey is part of what I think is fun about these sorts of things. Each week has a different story. Each week has a different sort of take home message. And, and, you know, I, I think it was a successful season for Florida. I think they've shown progress. I think a win over Oklahoma would sort of cement that and, and put, put sort of a bow on things in terms of Mullen's first three years. And then it's time to get to work for year four. Yeah. And I don't want to sound defeatist or something going into the game, but the game, I mean, honestly, it's hard to put a lot of stock in the final result, especially we're, we're going to see who plays first. Uh, of course, that that's a big part of it. But even after that, I mean, it's uh, I, I don't know. It's just well, look, man, you and I show up for the spring game, and and you know, yeah. a couple of years ago, got a little bit more um, involved than maybe we should have going into there. So we try to read something into everything because yep. you want to see how thing how things are going, and and. Um, you know, I think we'll do the same thing with this, right? I mean, yeah. again, I, I think there's going to be an opportunity. They want to go out there and play and win. Yeah, and and thumb wrestling, win yeah, a thumb wrestling match. Like I want to see that, right? I want to see. You know, there's a lot of fire at times from Mullen. Um, one of the things I think maybe coming out of this year that might need to be cleaned up is some of the chirping that's going on, considering the uh, the 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 physical stuff that was going on with Carter and stuff in this game, and then the fight against Missouri. Um, but, you know, I want to see that fight, right? I want to see, you know, I don't care. Roll the ball out there and we're going to play as hard as we can, no matter what guys we've got. And and let's see. I think this is an opportunity for a lot of young guys to get an opportunity. And, you know, fans have been clamoring for it, right? Let's get some of those DBs in there. Let's get some of the linebackers in there, get them some playing time, show them what it's really like to play against a high-level team and see if they can hold up. And if they can't, then that gives them some things to work on heading into the offseason. And if they can, then Florida comes out victorious and it makes the season look really nice. And that's the weird thing about bowl games, and maybe this one in particular. We don't know if they're going to do that or not. 
I mean, you could go in there and say, okay, I feel pretty comfortable. You know, Florida's, Florida's, you know, Florida plays good, and they got they got most of the guys that we expect to be out there, out there. And okay, you feel pretty comfortable about a win, but then you go out there and you see uh, maybe Hopper and Wingo are starting at linebacker and playing the whole game, and Torrance is playing the whole game. You're okay, maybe I didn't expect this, and you don't know where the the results going to be uh, there. But you would like, like you said, you'd like to see those guys play. You'd like to see, you know, maybe the game start off the players who did so much this year get their time in and then uh, maybe some kind of youth movement within the game itself uh, goes out there, but we'll see. We, you got, I got to, got to figure out how I'm going to record uh, the Oklahoma preview will, because uh, um, you know, this week, Christmas week, everybody out there had holidays, Merry Christmas, uh, of course. Um, but then the game's next Wednesday. I'm going to South Carolina for a few days for like vacation wise. So I was like, man, I got to, I'm gonna figure out how to do this. I thought I'd have a little, I thought I'd have another day or so to kind of maybe uh, do that. But uh, so I may pre record later this week. And if anything changes, just have to update it along the way somewhere. You just got to take your banner with you, man. Like take that yeah. banner, put it up in your in laws' place or wherever you're going, tack it up on the wall, bring your equipment with you, have your wife yelling at you for not tanning it out with your family when, you, when right. you're on the, on the vacation. That, Hey, look, the Gator Nation demands this. And actually, I do have one bone to pick with you. Okay. Which is that, uh, you know, for two straight weeks now, uh-huh. you haven't yelled at anybody in the parking lot going into these games. I didn't yell. You did yell. No, no, no. That's not the story I heard. The story I heard is was sort of a group yell this time. Like, we're, we're going to need you yelling at people in the parking lot next year, brother. <laughs> I don't even know how that one got started, but okay. <laughs> hey, we, you and I both got it, but new, 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 new addition to the collection. Oh man, those are so blue pretty. helmet. The blue helmet in the back. They're so pretty. Yes, they are. They, you do look a little like the team does look a little bit like Kentucky when when you zoom <laughs> back from the from the helmet, especially the one that has the Gator script on it. But man, the matte color, it's so pretty. It is. It is. Looks better in person than, than I thought it would. Looks really good. So anyway, yeah. man, first world problems, not knowing how you're going to record your podcast for the Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. So yeah we'll see. Consider, I mean, you know, again, I, I think big picture, look back at where we were in August, where we weren't sure we were going to even have a year. Yeah. And so congratulations to the team in terms of following protocols. And, you know, they obviously had the one, the one outbreak coming back from Texas A&M, but, you know, from hanging outside the Vanderbilt locker a couple of weeks later to, you know, to the pack the swamp comments that, that Mullen was making after the AM game. It's been sort of a controversial year. At the same time, thus far, we have had guys on the team contract a disease, but no one's been seriously affected by it, which is fantastic. And and so, you know, you get all the way through the year. It's a successful year. You win a lot of games. But more than anything, people coming out of it healthy and having the entire season has, has been, I, I think, a nice panacea for people out there who've sort of been stuck in their homes and are watching the virus count go up and up and up and up over the last couple of months. So kudos to the players. Kudos to the coaches for going through it, right? I mean, it's not, I mean, these guys are getting their, their noses swabbed all the time. They're getting tested all the time. Um, They're not allowed to go home and see their parents. They can't, you know, all the things that you sort of take for granted as a college student and just as a, you know, sort of member of society, things that they're under a microscope and can't do. So they've had to make some sacrifices this year for the betterment of us. And so I do think we should say thank you to the players and to the coaches for committing to that and being willing to do that and, and giving us a great season. Absolutely. It has been fun. That has been really fun. And even even going to the swamp and 16, 17,000 people there, you know, it, just, it, it did give the players something to enjoy with the with, with the fan base. The fans that were there were, were loud and crazy and raucous at, at the time. Well, I tell you what, man, in between the third and fourth quarter at the SC championship game, 
the Florida fans were loud. And I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to call them out there. It was positive, you know, call them out in a positive way that the, the, the Gator fans were loud there in between the third and fourth quarter doing, we are the boys and it's a four point game and, and, and all that stuff. Like, you know, that, they, they felt it. They felt it so close there. Uh, and you know, as I said, you, you cause that was kind of a, maybe a culmination of how you maybe just, you know, the feeling of joy of, you know, feel, feeling it right there in that moment, but everything, all the good stuff, starting from the old Miss game and the fireworks all throughout the season, and finally beating Georgia, and you know that's uh, one of my lasting memories for for at least the the season and, and being a fan is just hearing that fan base in between third and fourth quarter with you know the the thought of a chance of of knocking off Alabama there. Yeah, you could hear them on the TV. It was pretty impressive, and and that's one of the things about the Florida fan base. It's a little bit of a double edged sword. I mean, we feel it a little bit, right? I mean, when we say something stupid or when we say something controversial, we hear it from both sides, um, and, and the players even more so, right? And, and it can get really negative, and it can get really hurtful sometimes. And I know that can be hard for the players and especially their families. But at the same time, the level of support that you get from the from the fans within the Florida program is significant. And so hopefully, hopefully the players and their families realize that, you know, 99.9% of Florida fans love your kids and love what they've contributed to the university. The 0.1% who don't, I guarantee you, they all have Twitter accounts. So the lesson as always is just stay off of Twitter. If you're a family member or stay off of social media, if you're a player and, and at least don't, don't read your mentions. But uh, you know, that passion is part of the thing that makes Florida Florida football so special and one of the reasons why it's fun for us to do this right is that we get so much interaction different people people we've met on Twitter people we've met through the podcast people we've met through my website mm-hmm. who you know have become friends become people we talk to all the time and have become you know people that we hang out with when we go to these games so um, Florida football is a special thing I mean it's a special thing because of the fraternity of people who've gone to Florida but it's a special thing just because of the bond that you get and part of that is you know the high side is the passion and we and we certainly experienced that during the SEC championship game even though it wasn't completely full. All right. All right. There we go. Um, bowl game coming up. Like I said, I'll, I'll figure out when I'm going to put it, uh, put out a preview. We'll try and enjoy the holidays a little bit too. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we were talking about it uh, in the press box today, you know, or Saturday, what nine, nine straight weeks, I think eight, eight or nine straight weeks there, uh, the, you know, following the team and the team playing, you know, shout out to them for those nine weeks in a row. Uh, there too, but it it has been exhausting leading up to the uh, to the holidays. And man, I tell you, my wife was not one too happy with football season going into December nineteenth. So <laughs> we're gonna get a five star commit on Christmas Day. Just for you, Dave. Just for you, Dave. But we'll take it. I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll do the all by myself if we get a five star commit. There we go. There we go. <laughs> but it has been fun. It has been fun. So everybody, once again, happy holidays out there. It should be uh, enjoy it, enjoy it. If you can be with your family, enjoy it. I know everything's still still weird out there, travel restrictions, and you know not being able to travel, or you know just trying to keep family members safe as uh, as you possibly can. But for all of uh, all of you that can be with your family, enjoy it. If you can just be with the the you know your close family, enjoy that as well. But enjoy the holidays if you can. Take some time off, enjoy it, breathe. Relax, unplug a, a little bit. I'll be doing it. Believe me, <laughs> I will be doing it uh, a good bit. So, uh, Will, um, anything coming up later when we reaction this week? 
Yeah, Nick's got something going up tonight that's going to be talking about Trask and whether he should go to the NFL. Um, I'll probably have something about whether he should win the Heisman. And then I've got something about Brian Johnson and and some thoughts I have in terms of him potentially becoming a head coach. So that's going to be this week. I'm actually taking this week off of work, so uh, have some time sort of to, on the periphery to, to write some things that maybe are a little bit different. But uh, you know, I just want to say thank you to everybody who's followed us, everybody who's uh, listened to the podcast, read the website, supported us in any way. I really appreciate it. This isn't – it's not something we take for granted. Really appreciate the platform everybody gives you. And, you know, Christmas and New Year's is sort of a time and Thanksgiving is sort of a time you take a look back and say, take an inventory of what you're doing and, and how you're received. And certainly um, everybody who's helped us, I want to make sure we take the time to say thank you because it's been, been an awesome ride the last couple of years here with you, buddy. And uh, looking forward to next year after the bowl game. Here, 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 here. All right, Will Miles. You can find him at readreaction.com and at Will Miles SEC on Twitter. I'm your host, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.